All right. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you all for joining us today for the uh, fifth episode of Fintech Fireside Asia. It's a monthly online talk show where we bring you some of the brightest minds from around the region within the fintech space and uh, sit them down for a casual chat. Today, we're joined by Jason Thompson, who is the CEO of OVO, one of Indonesia's most uh, popular digital payments player. And he'll be speaking to us to uh, give us a sense of the scene and, and the opportunity within the uh, Indonesian fintech landscape. Thank you for joining us, Jason. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for the invite, too. It's good to see you again. It's been a while. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's not in person, but uh, glad to speak to you anytime, whether virtually or physically as well. So, you know, Indonesia has been pretty interesting, right? Um, even on the digital payments front alone, uh, you know, the, the sum has kind of gone from 8 billion in 2015 to 44 billion last year. So that's quite a huge jump and quite a huge adoption in, in, in the, the digital payment space. Can you maybe paint us a picture of the Indonesian fintech landscape and what it's like over there right now? Yeah, I mean, just in the short time I've been in Southeast Asia, which is over four years now, I think uh, from arriving in Indonesia in early 2017 to what the country is like today, we've seen immense change. Um, you know, not, not just thinking about fintech, but actually looking more broadly at infrastructure, the way the regulator operates, government, the way they're investing. I think the country is maturing at a, um, an accelerating rate, so it's an exciting place to be. And we've seen the same in fintech. We've seen that there's an explosion early in payments and in lending. And that's starting to consolidate now and the business is maturing quite rapidly. And then we're still then we're seeing new fintech arrive. You know, we're seeing ad tech become more popular, alternative marketing platforms. Uh, and of course, you know, OVO is expanded into areas like insurance, marketplace, and uh, recently into, into investments wealth. So we're seeing the market move very, very quickly. And I think that gives us um, an insight into the consumer as well. That mm -hmm. the, uh, Kowi talks eloquently about the Mac economy, the middle economy, affluent consumer. And we see them as a, a real vehicle of change, not only in the way they're using fintech today uh, to improve lifestyle, to change the way they think and plan around money, but actually, you know, the, there's a cascading impact to that wealth distribution and knowledge distribution. So I do see that this Mac economy in Indonesia is having an overarching effect in, in the way we accelerate, whether that be in e-commerce, whether that be in payments or whether that be in other fintechs. So globally, I think I've shared with you before, Vincent, I always say to my team, whether it's a challenging day or it's an exciting new launch, I think it's a huge privilege to be a part of the fintech scene in Southeast Asia and Indonesia. Yeah, for sure. And not just the past five years, right? I mean, last year alone, things has changed at such crazy speed. I mean, if you look at 2019 and 2020, the, the whole scene is just completely different, not just in Southeast Asia, but just across the world. It's It's been quite a ride. Sorry, after you. Oh, no, no, go ahead. Go ahead. What were you about to say? It feels like every year is a brand new year. You know, when I when I worked in companies like Microsoft, there was a level of, there was a continuum and there was new business and there was businesses that, that were coming to the end of their life cycles. You know, you always had businesses in different stages. Um, you know, I remember as uh, bringing to the end of its life the, the Microsoft home server, 
I remember mm. the disaster of Windows Vista and the success of Windows 7. So you have <laughs> these different, I've still got scars from Windows Vista. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, you saw these different businesses at different, uh, different points of their, their ideation and maturity. In Indonesia, it feels like every year is a brand new year. Like no, you know, sure. the, the continuum is less and the change is, is huge. Um, so you've also been agile of mind and strategy in Indonesia and, and Southeast Asia, I think is, is very different. You know, I'm, I'm not a startup guy per se. This is the first time I've been in a startup, um, but it, it really teaches you to be very agile and, uh, and think differently. But I, I do think this last year has taught us a lot of good things. I think we, you know, there is a cloud sure. over our head with, with COVID-19 and all the things that come with it. But I think it's taught us a lot of good lessons on, on how our businesses need to be sustainable and have more maturity. No, for sure. And, you know, the, the speed of things is like, you know, it just gives, gives you a whiplash after a while trying to keep track of everything. <laughs> but those, those, of, uh, those of them, those of the, the people that know you, they know, you know, before this, you were with Grab in Singapore, and then you've uh, moved on over to Indonesia, you know, so why did you uh, pick Indonesia for this phase of your career? Like, what do you see in Indonesia that uh, made you choose this move? I used to work for an American company, um, a, 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 a fintech company based out of Kansas City called Euronet, mm. of all names for an American company. And, you know, we had businesses in, in payments, in foreign exchange, in all sorts of different areas of commerce relating to payments. And I used to run a large geography of Europe, Middle East, Africa and Asia. So I opened a business in Beijing, you know, lots of different places around the world. And one of the things for me that's always been interesting, I, I've always loved coming to Asia. Um, the culture, the people, the vibrancy, not least the food, the geography, nature. <laughs> I, I just think it's a stunning part of the world. Um, and so I was actually headed to, I was um, in a number of discussions, and one of the discussions was to move to the Valley, uh, to move to California. And it's a very good job, um, but for some reason I didn't feel, um, I didn't feel excited. And the thing that didn't work for me was I couldn't feel purpose. It was typical PML, you know, driving bottom line, driving the EBITDA. And I think there comes a stage in your life where you want your work to do more than just drive profitability. And so um, when I first come to Southeast Asia, I was meeting different businesses here, I was trying to open up different businesses, and I got to know Anthony. And Anthony, you know, one of the things that I learned about him very early on, that what drove him was the was really how he could make a difference, fundamentally bring people into employment and give them more predictable lifestyles. And mm. you know, this, this, um, this purpose really was something very different to me, it's something I've been searching for. So once I started to see that, um, it, it become, I don't know, it's like a worm in the mind. The more I thought about it, the more I wanted to be a part of it. Um, and then in late 2016, we acquired Kudo uh, with Albert Nagun. Mm. And I spent a lot of time on the ground with the Kudo agents, uh, not just in central Jakarta, but also in outlying cities, you know, in Medan, Surabaya. And we, we traveled up to Bandung, which is a beautiful place. And, you know, mm. all these different places and, and learned the stories, not of agents, but of people. And I remember one of the ladies, her husband had become unemployed. Um, they didn't have money and literally we've been able to, we, we literally um, rented a phone to her, a mobile device, and we turned her business on and she was suddenly getting income from bill pay, mobile top-up, collections. She was taking 
services like Google Ad Park and Tokopedia and Lazada into the village and allowing people to buy things more cheaply and arranging them to be delivered. And you saw how her life changed. And I met her 18 months on and she looked so different. The clothes she was wearing, her health. And, and you know, it was very emotional for me um, seeing her like that. And so when I had the opportunity to go and work in Indonesia full time, um, for me, it was just, it was, there was no question. Um, I love Indonesia. I love the people. I love the culture. Um, I love holidaying in Indonesia. Um, it's not always easy. It's a difficult place to run a business at times. Um, but I think generally the people are just lovely, lovely people. And I feel very privileged to those that have invited me into the country and, and become friends. I'm sure it feels a lot more meaningful to be able to kind of live a, a, a lasting impact in a sizable number of people's life versus profitability. Of course, profitability is important as well, but if you can do both at the same time, it's kind of the holy grail, isn't it? It's not an and or. I think Harvard talk about the double bottom line. Um, and it, mm. you know, it has to be both. You know, we, we, we have to have a responsibility. And I do think, oh, sure. you know, a, pre-COVID even, we were seeing a correction globally. The last correction was was really about the dot-com um, boom and burst. And we've seen it in the application era. There was starting to be investments. I remember some of the businesses that I've looked at in Indonesia and, and around Southeast Asia, the, the multiples never made sense to me. You know, we're starting to make the, the bingo numbers, the not investment numbers. Um, and so I, I think that correction is happening now. Um, and mm. I think businesses have been accountable, held accountable for cost of acquisition, retention, churn, sure. you know, unit economics that have a path to profitability, long-term sustainability. And so I, I think as a, a region, we're also growing up. Um, we're seeing the really big regional platforms in Grab, mm. SEA, become, you know, very mature, organized, well-financed businesses now that that look to me like they can really sustain over the long period. So my role is then to do the same for OVO and make sure OVO can sustain. Hmm. I think it's really interesting to watch because, you know, just a couple of years back, you you listen to very early interviews of these startups. They, they have all these visions and, and to be able to see it kind of play out and see them to, to a large extent, functioning like a well-oiled machine is, is a pretty interesting thing to observe. Now, before I move on to the next question, just want to quickly remind the audience who's tuning in today, um, you are welcome to also post questions to us as well. You can just uh, do so through our YouTube link and we'll try our best to address the questions as we go along. Now, Jason, I'm also curious, like when you... Um, you know, took on the role in Novo when you went to Indonesia a couple of years back. What was the thing that surprised you the most about the Indonesian fintech scene? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question because it is very different to anywhere else I've worked mm. in the world. And it's, you know, at the moment I'm back in Singapore mm. for a couple of weeks. I've been locked down, as you know, in, in Jakarta with the team. And I've come back to see my kids and mm. I'm heading back to Jakarta very soon. And the landscape here is incredibly different to, to what it's like in Indonesia. There's the regular challenges around infrastructure, geography, the fact that it's yeah. uh, an island nation, and we all know those. But actually, some of the things that really were more surprising to me is the biggest one is the proximity that government, regulators, and businesses work together. So yeah. if you take a business, you know, some of the businesses that I run in Europe, 
you never had that proximity. Your relationship was very much a very formal relationship, one built on, on policy, written communication. Uh, you know, if you wanted to address an issue or lobby, it was a very long, project, uh, protracted affair. Whereas here, I've found that the regulators are very active, they're very engaged. Um, if you take the product that we've recently launched, uh, the investment product, you know, operating under a sandbox, and we're really challenging the, the regulation. The regulation was preventative in a way for financial inclusion, and, and we articulated our position, and the regulator did a lot of work with us to learn, created a sandbox, and then we started talking about the, the requirements of fintech, saying, well, the product needs mass distribution. It can't be single-point distribution. It's not effective. It has to be instant gratification. You know, yesterday, I invested another 50,000 IDR. It's something I do quite frequently in our investment product. And you see it instantly. And because of the, the currency, the change in value is rewarding as well. But, and also instant gratification. Liquidity has to be available if somebody needs their money for healthcare, food, etc. Yeah, for sure. So we worked super close with the regulators and actively taking feedback and guidance from them, um, discussing things like data protection on route, security, fraud management. So the, the first thing that surprised me was the proximity that we worked together. And I, I think Western European, North American governments and regulators can learn an awful lot from Indonesia and the way that we work closely as one team to solve the problem. We still you know, have clear respect for the regulator and we are a commercial business, but we can work closer together. So that's, that's something that surprised me at the beginning. Um, the next thing was how forgiving the customer is. That a product that's good enough is literally good enough. That you don't have to develop a product to such an amazing degree that it does everything. It's if you make sure you solve the core problem that it's proposed to do for the customer, the customer will engage, give you feedback, and help you develop the product. So the, rather than the customer being more rejection-orientated, I felt that they were more um, communicative. They wanted to give you communicative. They wanted to give you feedback. They wanted to be heard. And so I've always felt that the, the Indonesian merchant, the Indonesian consumer is, is very forgiving and helpful. Um, we should never abuse them. We should always respect them and be customer-centric. But at the same time, I think it is good to launch products and learn. And one of the things, certainly with my team, I accept failure as a part of my job. Um, we're, we're climbing Everest for the first time. This is pioneering. If we're not making mistakes, then we're not elevating fast enough. So the customer has allowed us to do that. Um, the, the scale of growth then is the next thing. You know, we, we launch things in Europe and North America and, and the growth scale is slow. And you know, maybe year three, you get to velocity. You turn things on in Indonesia and it's scary. You know, we, we turned on investments a few days ago. I mm. checked with the team last night. I think in the first few days, we had 125,000 people invest with us. Really? Wow. <laughs> it's just that's, incredible. That's yeah, yeah, incredible number. And, and so I, I, yeah. the, the adoption is just unbelievable. The way that social communication works, the way that the influencers work, the way the market educates so quickly, it really is incredible. I think the product you did, uh, you launched a couple of 
couple of weeks, couple of days back with Barexa. I think that's an interesting one. I mean, it does uh, democratize the access to wealth management products for a lot of Indonesians, right? But uh, maybe walk us through that partnership and that product because I think maybe some of the audience that's tuning in may not be entirely familiar with the Indonesian scene. Why don't you walk us through uh, that investment product that you just launched? Yeah, sure. So I, I met Paka, the uh, the founder of Varexa, I guess about two and a half years ago. He just launched a product with Pa William at, uh, at Tokopedia. And we were talking about China and how investment had grown and, and how prolific this was. And so Kara and I spent some time with the teams really learning um, learning about investment per se, but also focusing on Yobao. And I got connected with a couple of the, uh, one of the founders of Yobao actually, and started to learn about what, what they tried to do, how are they trying to democratize? And obviously globally now it's, a, it's the largest fund. Um, and so what we learned is we learned four things from them as a part of our investigation together. Number one was, as I mentioned earlier, mass distribution. Number two was low friction, high velocity. The product has to be seamless. Number three was instant gratification. And number four was instant liquidity. So there was these principles that they, they firmly believed in from China. So then we overlaid those principles on our existing product and we failed miserably. It was just, you know, the, the existing product was, was cumbersome. It was, um, it was very complicated for the customer to understand the investment. It was very complicated to make the payment. You often didn't see your investment for three days after you'd paid. Um, so none of those principles were achieved. So Card and I really started to work with the team and say, okay, how could we do this? So we, we built a strong partnership, but ultimately the reason I think that partnership is, is working so well for us is the level of trust that, that Card and I have, that the teams have, you know, we really are integrated at all levels of the company and work together. So we, we have a principle of working together and doing what's right for the customer. So we then started to put payments on Barexa, first of all, actually, mm. and say, okay, so if you change the payment and you make the payment faster and you solve for instant gratification, what does that look mm. like on Barexa? And OVO, at launch of OVO payments on Barexa, we were 50% of transactions within four weeks. Hmm. It doesn't make sense because this is a yeah. high, you know, this is a top economy product, hmm. or, or at least it was at the time. Um, but it shows that payments in itself is just a problem. And hmm. the fact that we could legitimize the payments so fast and therefore the customer can see their investment immediately, it, the customer satisfaction increased. So we, we've started to really, you know, look at that and say, okay, then how do we go back to mass distribution? How do we take this product to more places? How do we make it seamless? And so the launch really was a year of work to, to, to create um, uh, MVP1. It, it is our first product. There is a lot of improvements we can make, but I think broadly we've achieved those principles of mass distribution. You know, it's a high fidelity product. It's instant gratification. And most importantly, the customer knows they can get their money at any time which is on, uh, it's a reverse psychology. We're now expanding that relationship. We're now looking into gold. We're looking into government bonds. We're looking into, it gives you the confidence in the relationship then to expand the strategy and really take these principles over a, a number of areas of wealth and investment. 
I think it's important to provide consumers uh, multiple baskets of options to invest, just just to diversify their portfolios, right? That's something that's important. But um, I also kind of want to maybe take a step back and try to understand the thinking behind expanding into this type of uh, product lines and investment. And you did a bit of insurance as well. I mean, I guess in some ways, a lot of uh, digital payments player in Southeast Asia find it difficult to achieve profitability with payments alone, right? Because the margins are notoriously low. So is OVO eventually looking into kind of a super app kind of play or are you still mostly focused on this kind of uh, partnerships moving forward? I think it's very hard for a financial services application to become a super app and it's certainly not on our agenda. Um, the governance in the financial services business is very high. Um, you know, we, we invited... Um, Parmirza, uh, who's an ex-senior uh, Deputy Governor of Bank of Indonesia to join as our President Commissioner. And Parmirza has really helped us develop in terms of our governance and the way we look at the business, we think about the business, the way we record, report. So we're really developing as a financial services organization. I think culturally, it's important we focus on that and we achieve the necessary levels of governance. You know, for me personally, the way that we protect the customer, their money, their information, etc., is super important. So yeah. I, I don't want to. Um, I don't think it's wise for us trying to be what all things to all people. Um, mm. Coming back to your question on on payment profitability, I do think we can achieve payment profitability. Certainly, everything is showing us that we're going in the right direction. Our unit economics are, are improving year on year. The payments business is GM positive, so it's not EBITDA positive, but it is GM positive. So we're, we're heading in the right direction. Um, developing things like fraud management services. Uh, our fraud at the moment is, I believe last week was around 54 Sing dollars, um, which was 0. 0.0008 something. Um, I, I review fraud every Monday morning with the team, um, identity and fraud. and. You know, you've really, with, with the payments business, what I do believe, if you look at the global payments or, or local payment businesses, you really have to focus on the unit economics and you have to get the business model right. And you have to have core capability around fraud management and system management. I, I see a lot of businesses that rush into payments and they don't have the fundamentals. And then I, I don't see how they sustain. You know, one, one of the businesses in Indonesia I'm very well aware of has fraud of around 21%. That sounds like a charity to me. Yeah, it doesn't inspire a lot of confidence for the users either. I mean. And I think the, the regulator is holding everybody accountable mm. to get to a very high bar now. But I think if we, you know, as an industry, if we focus on this, I do think payments is profitable in Indonesia. You know, there's some countries in the world, you know, if you look at somewhere like Portugal, where the regulation in the MDR is so low, it's almost impossible to have a, a profitable business there. But at least it should allow us to get marginal profitability from payments. And of course, that allows us both the data and the fidelity with the customer to provide financial services. For sure. And do, do you think that um, in Obo's case, profitability is... Uh, easier to achieve compared to other players because of your strategy to partner with the likes of Tokopedia and Grab. I mean, a lot of your user base has been through this kind of uh, partnerships, right? So it does kind of drive down your cost of customer acquisition significantly compared to a lot of other players out there who just kind of uh, throw money to, 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 to acquire new users. Would you consider I mean, that factor as well? 
if you look at the beginning of this um, strategy, the, you know, I've likened it to a physical problem that your effort to move the market is huge. So the work that we did at the beginning with, with um, high impact advertising in retail and distribution, it played a key part in the strategy at that moment in time. Um, but we've continued to improve our unit economics, our cost of acquisition and retention. Our churn rate is very, very good. We've continued to increase our usage models, you know, more innocuous usage models such as car parking, mobile top up, regional bill pay to all the different areas of Indonesia. You know, it all takes a lot of effort, um, but it, it allows the customer to um, pay more easily, plan more easily. So today, not only have we seen the, um, the payment volume in Indonesia grow rapidly, but actually one of the things that's very pleasing for me is the volume of stored value that we have in the wallet today mm. is tens of millions of dollars, which means customers are planning to use OVO and they're planning their finances. So when we talk about things like financial inclusion, this is, this is really, you know, it's almost a banked behavior mm. already. And so I think there's some businesses that are still very much focused on the vanity of market share I'm very much focused on serving my customer. I'm very much focused on developing the services that serve my customer. Uh, I'm very much focused on the merchant and what we need to do to help them. They're the things that I'm focused on, and I believe that's what will take us to profitability. And you know, you say you said that it's kind of like a bank, but the funny thing is that on the flip side, a lot of people don't even use their bank accounts as frequently as they they might with your over accounts as well, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, customers, in, I, there's a lot of um, history behind this, isn't there, in, in Indonesia and Southeast Asia. So I'm, I'm very careful as um, an expat not to, I, I don't know the full details of this and I wasn't here. But what I do see from the customer is that the behavior is in the right direction. And, you know, how regulation changes and develops, I expect in the future we will see more regulation because stored value in Indonesia is growing rapidly. So mm. I would expect that the regulator will want to develop the regulation around that as well. So we also work very closely and think about these things. Um, but it's um, if we look at somewhere like China, I think the regulation and the, and the industry developed at different cadences. And it actually, from if we look at P2P lending, it was very, very damaging to the consumer. Mm, for sure. Do you think the way that the, and I mention the regulator a lot because we work very, very closely. And I think the way we're trying to develop, uh, co-develop the regulation that, that drives financial inclusion, that drives change, that protects people, I'm actually extremely positive about it. Very cool. So let's move on by uh, taking some questions from the audience. Um, so I'm not sure if you are able to address this because it's not really directly related to OVO, but um, there were comments about the merger, but I, I'm not sure if Jason's able to address this since it's still quite speculative. Yeah, so I don't want to, um, I, yeah. I'm not somebody who likes to talk about mm. um, media noise etc you know this this isn't something that we're going to discuss i think what i can say though is if i look at southeast asia more generally and look at this as a as a commercial leader yeah. i'm a professional ceo i'm not a founder um and, and i think a founder is is very different in some ways the, because it's it's their family it's their baby whereas i look at a business 
and I look at it, I'm very attached to my business, but I look at it, I think, more mm. from a P&L view as well. Um, I see in Indonesia and I see in Southeast Asia at the moment what's happening is we've got one or two platforms really rising to the fore, uh, and the way they're capitalized is very impressive for the stage of life they're at. You know, and I'm not just talking about Southeast Asia, the way they're capitalized globally is very impressive. And they continue to attract investment and they continue to attract deep strategic partnerships. So I think we're now seeing to see a couple of platforms in Southeast Asia really accelerate away from the group. What I do believe is in Southeast Asia, we currently have a small area of consolidated business, large platforms, and we have a long tail of independent businesses. If we look at somewhere like um, North America, Europe, even in India now and China, the medium-sized enterprise community is formed, but it's not formed here. I do believe that in the next five to 10 years, you will see a lot more medium-sized enterprises being developed through mergers and acquisitions. So I think as a behavior, I, do, I expect that the landscape in Southeast Asia will continue to change, and I expect that medium-sized enterprise will become more prevalent as it is in other geographies. So that, that you know, um, I don't get, I, I focus on my business, my customer, I don't get wrapped up in a lot of things that I see in here, um, but I do expect that medium-sized enterprise to, to really grow, and that will also help solidify the economies in Southeast Asia, because you can't have large corporate and long tail independence. You need that medium enterprise. And so I think naturally the next iteration for Southeast Asia is development of medium sized enterprise. For sure. Um, let's move on to the next question over here. Um, one of the audience members question is related to the infrastructure in Indonesia. So do you find that um, the internet infrastructure or even uh, basic things like electricity might be a roadblock for OVO or it's not really a roadblock? How, how do you deal with this kind of uh, disruptions? I've had some really rare things happen to my business in Indonesia that I've never come across before. And certainly, I think four years ago, uh, internet disruption, um, Wi-Fi penetration, etc., was a bigger problem than it is today. I'm seeing infrastructurally connectivity is improving. So it's becoming a lesser problem. And um, we have had some significant power outages, and obviously, you just can't um, you can't operate around them. You know, we saw most of Java have an outage for a considerable mm -hmm. amount of time. There's not a great deal we can do with that. Um, when you have such a sizable outage, um, it impacts industry as a whole. And so we, we you know, I know Padjakowi was very vocal about that time and how industry needs to improve and prevent this. And we even had one of our data centers lose all power. This is an independent data mm. center. We're not there now, but in the early days, we had somebody <laughs> actually turn off the power in the data center. Now we migrated away from that some time ago, and we're, we're a cloud-based organization um, with domicile data locally. But you know, there's certain things that happen in emerging markets that, that you just have to get used to. And, and having worked in emerging markets for quite some time, I think I'm, I'm quite weathered with that. But I would say now in Indonesia, um, I see less and less interruption through these mm -hmm. types of services. I see more consistency of connectivity. Um, even if you go to Papua, you know, if you go out to Kalimantan and places like that, um, service connectivity is pretty good these days. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've also observed that the infrastructure has improved tremendously over the years. Right? Like, like you said, right, the, some of these problems are not as, as frequent as it used to be. Um, I'm, so, I'm also curious as well. I mean, if you look at Indonesia's digital economy, um, it's expected to grow exponentially uh, to 124 billion, according to the Google Economy Report. So for you right now, what are some of the most um, exciting opportunity that you see in the uh, Indonesian fintech space right now? So I, I think, first of all, we've really tried to launch good quality verticals that serve financial inclusion. And expanding on that, you know, we're really understanding if we take payments, we're trying to understand what is the problem we're solving for and mm. then build around that. And build around the solutions, increase the usage model. And then as Indonesia grows, we're, we're going to benefit from this, this natural um, compound growth. So we've, we've continued to build up verticals that we believe have a rich vein of growth over the next five to 10 years. Um, so I think what excites me most about Indonesia is the velocity of change. It's, you know, it's just a, personally been a Westerner it's just a different velocity than I've seen anywhere else in the world. You know, even when I've worked in places like, you know, Central Eastern Europe, when it was emerging, uh, the Middle East, it just doesn't compare to Southeast Asia and Indonesia. Right? I think this is, if we go back five, 10 years ago, everybody talked about Brazil, Russia, India, China. I think now in the world, everybody talks about Southeast Asia. So it's a huge privilege that we're all here today and we're a part of this growth. And the velocity of that growth, the internet penetration, the basic infrastructure is in a place now where I just think the next five years are going to be phenomenal. Look at the growth in 2020, despite COVID. E-commerce growth, mm. offline food delivery. It's just been phenomenal uh, this last year. So that, that scale and growth, and that really excites me. I love the way that um, Southeast Asia as a whole believe in this tomorrow is better than today in the next generation. You know, there's this upwardly mobile, optimistic. I often find Europeans miserable. And, yeah. <laughs> I don't see that being well. I'm not, am I European? That's a good yeah. question. Being British. <laughs> That's a British thing, though. <laughs> Let's not go into that. Um, yeah. That's a whole other thing. <laughs> Um, I, I think that, you know, that number one is around the scale. Number two is around the culture, the, the culture of adoption, the culture of change, the upward mobile. Um, the next thing that really excites me is, and we've talked about it a bit already, you know, it's in the, every year is like a brand new year. You have to re-strategize, mm. rethink. That, that agile lifestyle, that agile business mentality is driving us to change. So if you look at the way businesses are maturing in Southeast Asia, it's actually very rapidly. We're having to mm -hmm. learn and mature very quickly. You know, you, you take a business like Grab, it's, um, it's an enterprise business with good structure, good governance, um, you know, good values, um, a HR organization that has rich training and development centers, mm -hmm. these kind of things. It's very, very different to, to a business maybe five years ago. So because of the size and the, the scale of the geography, we, we have to grow rapidly. The thing that, the, the last thing that excites me absolutely the most is we don't know what the next five years holds. We know it's going to be amazing, 
and I could never imagine the last four years being what they are. <laughs> so goodness knows what the next five years are going to hold. I don't know. I mean, since 2020, I don't even know what the next quarter is going to hold. <laughs> what more the next five years, right? But you're, you're right, you know, like speaking a lot to a lot of the entrepreneurs in Southeast Asia, there is a certain air of excitement and they, they grow at such a rapid speed, right? Like there are so many founders that just a couple of years back were just a PowerPoint deck and now they, they're raising Series B, Series C, have proper HR models in place. You know, it's, it's just an exciting space to be. And another trend that I'm kind of uh, observing that's uh, coming in from the US are specs, right? Uh, it's becoming increasingly popular. And just yesterday, I saw even Traveloka is, is trying to go through that spec route. And I'm wondering if you see this trend um, kind of impacting the fintech space in Indonesia. Did you foresee that the fintechs over there will kind of go the route of uh, raising money through SPACs? I mean, SPACs, they're, they're not something new. I mean, they've been around a while, mm. right? And uh, yeah. I think it depends how they're used. My, my concern is that, you know, SPACs mm. are often a more economical way to, to launch on the public mm. markets, and it, it creates an interface between the business and the, the, the market. I, I think that's okay, but in the case of a financial services business, we have to be careful that governance is achieved. That, that could be damaging if a business launches through a SPAC too early, that correct governance and, and reporting, et cetera, isn't achieved. So I do think SPACs need to be closely regulated. I, I don't think they should allow businesses to, to launch that aren't at an appropriate level of maturity. Um, so for me, I, I, they've always been, um, they've kind of edged as a fashion product and they've become fashionable again because people are looking for different ways of, uh, of raising money. I think the regulation around them needs to continue to grow and be developed, especially around financial services. Um, so, you know, some unicorns are trying to use them to accelerate their IPO. I've always been a, a fan of taking a business to the right level of maturity, but I actually think they're good when the correct governance is used, when a business is accelerated and a new form of uh, investment is raised. I think as a vehicle, they're good when the governance is good overall mm. um and then specifically for financial services the governance has to be adhered to for sure now let's move along um it seems we are running short on time so before you before we go maybe jason do you have any um advice for entrepreneurs who are looking to enter the in indonesian market what are some of the lessons learned that you can share with them yeah, I mean, if I could go back four years and start this journey again, I think, uh, being honest, you know, there's a lot of mistakes that I've made. Um, I always tell my team every mistake in Ovo is my fault. I'm the CEO. I own it. Um, and that way, I think we have a culture of learning from our mistakes rather than creating blame around them. Um, but there's definitely been a lot of mistakes um, as we learn and as we grew. Today, we're resident on 115 million devices. I think we're in 426 cities and mm. towns. We, we serve a huge population. Um, and so the growth has been amazing. And I think to the outside world, um, the story is strong. But for me, there's things that we have definitely done wrong. We didn't understand the customer we were serving early enough. And I think in reality, because of that, we wasted money. And so I, I think we should have been, um, we were learning and growing and we were, we were gaining data and behavior 
but I think we could have done more work earlier. I've been very specific about the customer we want to say we want to serve in payments, mm. uh, and I think we've been somewhat eclectic on that. That we we changed our minds at time as well. So that would be one area. I think in any business, you know, really two two things for me is understand the problem you're solving, understand the people you're serving, and stay true to it. Right. Uh, you know, as also being a joint venture. Um, sometimes your your investors pull your strategy, and it's never been good for me. It's always been, you know, when I focus on the customer that we serve, when we focus on the problems that we solve, we're more efficient as a business. The business is um, culturally, internally, the people are more secure about what they're doing. So I think as founders, you know, don't allow um, necessarily allow input, but mm. go through the rigor and, and stay strong with your strategy and your beliefs and make sure they're backed up by data. Mm. Because I, I think investors will always pull and shape you. And so being strong in that way, I think it's really important. Um, next is really, um, the sooner you can allow your company to be data-driven and mistake-led, the sooner you can create security around that, the sooner your business will serve the customer better. I think in the early days, because I come from an enterprise background, a large business, I didn't necessarily allow a culture of failure. I think I was too focused on perfect product. Whereas I think in Southeast Asia, MVP, learn, iterate, learn, iterate, learn, iterate. And it sounds common sense, but I see a lot of businesses either um, trying to develop a, a product that is finished or they're trying to develop, the, the product isn't good enough. You know, understand what MVP is and do not allow your team to step back from that and learn from it. So I think if I'd have created more product rigor earlier in the iteration of the business, I think we'd have improved faster and our economics would have improved as well. And then lastly, people talk about talent here mm. and they talk about a lack of a talent pool. I have met, you know, when we hire, we, we, we look at the, the experience, we look at the knowledge, we look at the education and we look at the culture. The rate of learning and the way people are humble about that here means we are all developing a very rich talent pool. The, the, getting a blend of experienced people, maybe internationally or locally, but then betting on people of the right culture worked. I think I spent too much time searching for people with the experience, but actually they're not experienced in Southeast Asia. I would say there is a good enough talent pool here that has an amazing attitude. So embrace the people with the right attitude towards business and support them, help them, teach them, guide them, and at the same time learn from them because you know obviously not a millennial. <laughs> um, and I think, so I, I think um, I tried to build the perfect organisation. I was too slow. Whereas now we have some amazing people in our business, and I learn so much from them. They might not be the most experienced people, but they're absolutely incredible. But you know what they say, right? Hindsight is twenty twenty. But I'm sure a lot of uh, people tuning in uh, really appreciate some of these points that you've brought up. So before we go, Jason, why don't you share with us um, what's the, what's next for what, what exciting things are you and your team working on right now? So we've we've got a. I mean, our business is becoming more rounded now. Um, the way that we think about financial services, the way we're developing the next version of lending, the way we've expanded into um, supply chain lending, SME lending, 
investments growing. We're just uh, we're doubling down on insurance this year to disrupt that positively disrupt that industry with partners. Mm. Um, I think the business really this year is a year of maturity for us. We've got so mm. much in play now. We must focus. So the 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 strategy and the playbook is is pretty much there now. So for me, building this, continuing to build the team, the rigor focusing on growing these businesses to um, a relative size is everything we're doing. It's really about focus this year for us. And so you'll see that we will grow more partnerships. Uh, we've got a number of, of sizable partnerships that are growing. You will see the way that we anchor more on the merchant this year and we, we give more focus to the product for the merchant. But what, what I don't expect you to see from us this year is, is more new businesses. I think we're at a bandwidth, which is which mm. is um, correct for our size right now. Mm. And I think we're at a bandwidth where it's really important we double down on these products and, and build mm. them and grow them, improve them, um, become more data-centric in our understanding of the customer. So this year for me is going to be a very different year in that it's, it's, mm. it's really driving these businesses to the next level of maturity. Just a laser focus for 2021. Yeah. Yeah, and actually, that's going that in itself will be enjoyable because, you know, mm. starting new businesses has a world of one-time pains. <laughs> and you know, when you actually launch a business-like investment that's taken us from the first conversation to having a, a relatively good product is eighteen months, including regulation and everything else. It, there's a lot of one-time pain in that. Now we've actually got a product. Now we've got data. Now we've got customers. <laughs> now it becomes exciting. So I'm actually really looking forward to this year, really doubling down on these uh, these products and services. That that's going to be my big focus. Secondarily, digital banking. We we have to understand how neobank digital bank regulation is going to work in Indonesia. What's our role in that? Organisations will partner with. How do we think about that? A lot of organizations seem to be jumping into digital banking very quickly. And mm. um, I'm actually holding back slightly because I think it's, um, there, is more, there is more to learn and understand here. And so I think we will enter the market at some point. Um, how we build, buy, acquire, partner mm. is on PBD. <laughs> yeah. And I think digital bank is definitely a big and fascinating subject we could probably go on for another hour or four. <laughs> but um, we are unfortunately out of time. Uh, I hope to be able to do this with you again sometime. As always, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to join us, Jason. And thank you all for tuning in today. Uh, we all hope you had a great time. All right. Thanks, Vincent. Stay safe and thank take you. care. God bless. You too. Take care now. Bye-bye.